Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. For the next couple of months, Shelter in Place is taking a break from making new episodes so that we can make this work sustainable and bring you season two. If you'd like to help us with that, you can join our community for as little as $5 a month at shelterinplacepodcast.info. You can also sign up for our newsletter so that you're the first to hear about season two and get a behind the scenes look at our show. During the break, we're re-releasing a few episodes from season one that we want to make sure you don't miss. Some of them are episodes we particularly enjoyed putting together. Episodes we heard that our listeners loved too. Others are ones that feel particularly relevant to the moment we're in right now. Here in Oakland, our public school year starts in a week, which of course just means that in addition to working from home, mitigating fights, taming tantrums, and alternately resisting or yielding to the siren call of screen time, we now also get to manage our children's Zoom meetings and police unauthorized purchases of Frozen the comic book. Purely hypothetical, of course. Today's bonus episode combines episodes 55 and 97, starting with the days when distance learning was still relatively new, and then bringing us closer to the present, when it finally sunk in that not much was going to change for the foreseeable future. Whether you're a parent with children at home, or a teacher trying to figure out how to teach kids over a computer, these are episodes to help us find hope and help, even as we commiserate. They start way back in May. As of today, school is out for the summer. For my kids and all of the other kids in the Oakland public school system. I have to say, it feels pretty anticlimactic. Because for our family and for so many people we know, this landmark means little. Compared to the shock to our family system 10 weeks ago, when we became homeschoolers overnight with no training, preparation, or, I'll admit it, desire, this last day of school hardly registers. And since one of our kids has been struggling with school since kindergarten, we've been talking about continuing some shape or form throughout the summer. But before we plow into this pandemic summer, I think it's worth pausing for a moment to reflect on what we just went through. We just got through what for many of us felt like the longest 10 weeks of our lives. Let's raise a glass to our teachers who had to develop technology skills they never could have dreamed of to teach to a screen instead of to a room full of kids. Let's celebrate all the parents who taught their kids to crack an egg or clean the toilet or even just wash their hands properly. Let's give three cheers for the time when your kids were playing so nicely in the next room that you let them skip all schoolwork for the day because you didn't want to interrupt that rare magic. And tonight, let's do something fun. A family movie night, a quiet walk down your street, maybe even the happy pop of an open bottle of champagne. And then let's go to bed early because this has been exhausting and it's not over yet. That first weekend when the Oakland Public School System announced that schools will be closed for the next few weeks, I spent the better part of the weekend researching. 
Like many of you, I stumbled upon that colorful COVID-19 schedule that went viral. It was inspiring at the time. Since then, at least for me, that schedule has provoked much resentment and shame. I even took it one step further and created my own schedule, which was even more complicated and unrealistic. I wasn't excited about homeschooling, but I was going to do it. My kids were not only going to become whizzes at reading, writing, and arithmetic, but they were going to be cooking all of our meals, cleaning the house, gardening, playing piano, and all of the things that we'd always wanted to teach them but somehow never found the time to do before this pandemic. I don't have to tell you that that plan was one big fail. It only took a few days to realize the disparity between my ambition and reality. It wasn't just that I didn't have the energy or the skills to implement that kind of system. It was that my kids didn't want to do any of it. Schoolwork that should have taken us 15 minutes took all day. Trying to get my kids to sit in one place long enough to solve a math problem was like trying to trap a swarm of mosquitoes in an open jar. Even though we were never a big scream time family before, screens suddenly became the only thing my kids wanted to do. All that energy I'd thought I would funnel toward being a great teacher got quickly tapped with the more basic tasks of teaching obedience and tamping down the whining, pestering, and complaining that had existed before this pandemic but now felt constant. Sometimes I would blow up and give myself a time out. Sometimes I threw up my hands and let them have their way, hoping that the Krat brothers and Mr. Rogers could teach them what I wasn't able to. There's a book that has been sitting on my shelf for about a year that I've avoided during this pandemic living. It's Susan Wise Bauer's Rethinking School. I bought it for myself many months ago when a mom I admired recommended it. Someone bought me a second copy when we were in the thick of my son's school troubles this past year. I've been reading it in fits and starts, enjoying it, but when we started homeschooling our kids 10 weeks ago, I stopped reading. I think I was subconsciously avoiding it because I thought it was going to push me to the realization that I needed to homeschool my kids for good. I was so unhappy in our forced homeschool situation that I couldn't bear to face that thought. I should say that I have no hangups about homeschool itself. All the moms I know who do it are heroes. My mother-in-law is one of them, and there's no question in my mind that the education she gave her kids is far superior to the one that I had, even though I went to a great public school. But I have never wanted to homeschool. My husband doesn't want to either. Neither of us likes teaching our kids. We're not particularly good at it, which is to say we are actually quite bad at it. For all its flaws, I believe in public education. But revisiting Susan's book this week, my big fear did not come to pass. It didn't convert me to homeschooling. I just wished I'd picked it up sooner. It probably would have helped me a lot these past 10 weeks. Reading it made me feel something I hadn't felt for a while when it came to school. It made me feel hopeful. Susan begins her book challenging all of our assumptions about education one by one, she dismantles the myths that most of us accept as truth. There's so much good stuff there that it would take me a long time to recap all of it, 
And Susan's book is so well-researched and written that I'm going to just heartily recommend that you read it for yourself. Even if, like me, you're pretty certain that you will never homeschool. Maybe especially if that's where you're coming from. The long and the short of it is this. Education doesn't have to be this way. And in fact, the reason our current K-12 system looks the way that it does has more to do with the military and outsourcing childcare than it does with learning. It's a system that works like a factory designed to spit out 18-year-olds that all pretty much look the same. She writes, Our current model of classroom socialization where students primarily spend their days with others born within a 12-month period does nothing to prepare students for real life. Once out of the classroom, they've got to spend their days dealing with a multi-generational world, not the single-age culture they've been conformed to. What's more, Susan says, most K-12 classrooms tend to cater to one type of learner, prioritize one type of knowledge, and favor one kind of personality. In other words, if your kid is not a linear thinker, a compliant, organized kid who can sit still quietly, school is going to be a challenge. With Susan's permission, I'm going to share some specific passages with you. But my big takeaway from this book is that during this time of pandemic living, when we're questioning so many things about our former way of living, we should be questioning education too. For my family, this is not going to mean opting out of public education. From the very beginning, our reasons for sending our kids to public school have been bigger than books. Our public school is a bit unusual in that most of the instruction happens in Spanish, and our school has a large Latino immigrant population. There are a lot of things that we can give our kids at home, but the relationships, language, and history our kids are learning at their school is special. The community we're a part of there is a big reason why Oakland feels like home. This is not to say that our school is perfect. No school is. I'm a part of a text chain with 20 or so other parents, and some days I wake up to 50 new messages that represent a flurry of frustration or longing or commiseration over the ways things are and the way they ought to be. I love this text chain because it reminds me that I'm not alone in my struggles and also that the struggles we face as a school and a community are ones that we'll figure out together. But reading Susan's book this week, I started to think about how our return to school might look different, how our summer between now and then could look. I'm not talking about school reform or even social distancing, although certainly that work is important. I'm talking about the messages I'm giving to my kids right now. Susan writes, Tinkering with the mold itself isn't going to break this factory model. Instead, stop and think about what's coming out the other end. Who do you want your child to become? A caution here. Please don't first ask, what do I want this child to be able to do? It's our natural impulse because we know that launching our kids into adulthood is going to require them to find work and do it well enough to support themselves. But the what will my child do question is a fruitless one, largely because the world keeps changing. She says, instead of asking what kind of student we want our child to be, we need to think about our hopes for the kind of person they will become, and then help them figure out who they want to be. She suggests three challenges 
to help our kids figure out who they are and who they want to be. The first is to pay attention to emotions and feelings. She says for younger kids, pick just two emotions to focus on, one positive, one negative. Have them pay attention to simply feel those emotions and note when they happen. She writes, students who struggle are often given the impression that feeling frustrated or confused or bored is a bad thing, a symptom of their inadequacy. Children learn to be ashamed of those feelings and push them down. This doesn't improve learning. It just confuses the mental landscape. It also means that the negative emotions may be manifesting themselves as physical sensations. Stomach aches are the most common, so you might want to include aches and pains as something to be aware of. At the end of the day, she says to ask our kids about when they felt those emotions to try to figure out if the negative emotions are attached to certain subjects, particular teachers, times of day, or environments. Once we see those patterns, we have some tools to work with, the beginnings of a plan that will adjust our child's learning so that we can help them figure out how to listen to those emotions and let them inform the way they learn. The second challenge is to become aware of the things our kids love. She writes, The best learning happens when students are working with, not against, their natural wiring. But education too often becomes a long struggle against those inborn inclinations. She says that paying attention to what our kids love will help us understand how they learn best and whether they have a natural bent towards propositional knowledge or procedural knowledge. Propositional knowledge is what we're used to seeing in our classrooms. Knowledge that can be recited, facts that can be remembered and expressed, the kind of knowledge that comes naturally to kids who read and memorize things early and easily, and who process information verbally. Procedural knowledge, on the other hand, is information put to use. Painting, dancing, cooking, sewing, making, doing. Susan writes, Yes, all students need to be comfortable with reading and writing. All students need practice in verbal expression. But the child whose I love list is filled with acting, showing, moving, doing, probably has major strengths in procedural knowledge and won't be served well by teaching that relies almost exclusively on reading and writing, memorizing and testing. She says most of us are a combination of procedural and propositional learners. But understanding where we lean can help us know how to accept ourselves and understand how we work best. She goes on to say of that list of things your child loves, there is much more you can begin to glean from the list. Does the child like to be alone or in a crowd? Quiet or noisy? Surrounded by activity and color or in a clean and sparse environment? Does he prefer to create or absorb? Invent or analyze? argue, or contemplate. Her third challenge is to take self-knowledge tests, not IQ tests, which she has a lot to say about and does not think are helpful, but tests like Myers-Briggs, the Ready Test, and others that she has listed on her website, welltrainedmind.com. Susan says that it's not the test itself that matters, but the conversations and way of thinking that comes from doing them. She did a lot of them with her kids when they were growing up. She writes, We took every self-knowledge questionnaire that came across our paths. 
A lot of those tests were silly or badly designed or just puzzling. But the simple act of taking them put us into an objective, self-evaluative mode that isn't necessarily natural. And if you do enough of those tests, you start to see patterns. She says that those patterns can be powerful in helping us shape our world. They help our kids to understand that we're all wired differently, and that's not a bad thing. As I'm thinking about our future with our kids coming out of this time, I'm realizing the ways that my kids, and my son in particular, don't fit the system. He's the loudest and most vocal person in our house, but in big groups, he gets shy and his voice drops to a whisper. He doesn't care for writing or solving math problems, but he loves putting on shows, not so much acting in them, but directing them, being the guy who does the lights and the sound. It's almost impossible for him to sit still, unless he's doing something he wants to do, in which case he can be still and focused for hours. He's small for his age and always has been, something Susan says often correlates with needing more time to reach learning milestones. This is not to say that everything about school has been bad for him. His ability to speak Spanish better than anyone else in our family is perhaps the thing that makes him most proud. He comes alive when he speaks it. It's like a big, bright room inside him being opened up. But I doubt he'll ever feel at home in a traditional K-12 model. There are so many things about a typical classroom that play to his struggles instead of his strengths. I don't think that means we have to opt out, and I don't want to. But I do think we need to figure out a way to do things differently, at least for our family. Susan says, What we all want as parents is to find the educational situation that matches our child's particular blend of passions, abilities, and talents, meshes with our vision for our kids, and teaches to our child's strengths while generally improving on weaknesses. That is X, the place where the best possible learning happens. X is unobtainable, of course. You'll never find it any more than you'll find the perfect job, the perfect house, or the perfect spouse, or the perfect children come to that. X is ideal, so it always eludes our clutches. But you can imagine X. By imagining it, she says, you can solve for it. Susan writes, X has to equip your child to read, understand basic maths, and express herself, whether in writing or speech, I'll leave that up to you. But she says that in this thought experiment, everything else is up for grabs. She writes, X doesn't have to occupy 12 years. It doesn't have to use textbooks and teachers. It doesn't have to happen during a particular part of the day or year. Forget about truancy laws and your work schedule. Forget about grades and college applications. You're not worrying about those things right now. Every time you think, well, that's impossible, Stop yourself and consciously dismiss the objection. If you could educate your child in exactly the way that would best suit both of you, free of all restrictions and fears, what would that look like? Of everything Susan talks about in her book, this is the part that feels the most hopeful and exciting to me. Not because I have any idea yet on how to solve for X. It's going to take some time to figure that out. Maybe the whole summer, maybe the next year, maybe the next decade. But freeing myself from all of the assumptions about what school has to be 
gives me the ability to look at the big picture. Our family has been solving for X in life for a while now. I talked a lot about that during my Gratitude and Dreaming Challenge, which you can find in episodes 35 to 40. Solving for X in school has become a part of that. As challenging as life is right now, it's one of the gifts that this time has given us. The permission to put aside our former assumptions about what life had to be, and instead imagine a better one. Personally, I need to figure out how to solve for X without just reverting to my unrealistic COVID-19 schedule. As much as I would like my kids to excel in school on top of being active and musical and learning to cook and garden and be self-directed and also have lots of unstructured time, it's not possible to do all of those things. It helps to think not about what I want them to do, but who I want them to be, who they want to be. Maybe that means we figure out some different ways to learn. Maybe it means taking a gap year at some point, a practice Susan has some great things to say about, and not just after high school. In her chapter, Guiding Parents Who Do Decide to Homeschool Their Children, she says to practice saying, we're doing great, to stop feeling like you have to justify your decision to everyone. It got me thinking about this time we're living in, where we're all homeschooling. Maybe what we need most right now is to say that to each other, to remind each other that we're not stuck, no matter how bad this time feels, to say to each other, you're doing great. And also, let's solve for X one day at a time. If you've been listening, then you know that this podcast that began as a creative endeavor to mark this time in history has become the way that I'm supporting my family. Little by little, we're making our way forward, and the support of listeners is a huge part of that. Thank you to each of you who have supported this podcast through donations, by subscribing, by using the code SHELTER when you buy wine from my sponsor at brickandmortarwines.com and winesforchange.com. I'll be back with a more recent look at our distance learning predicament right after this. Shelter in Place is grateful to be sponsored by Delta Wines, the refined daily drinker with a social good built in. These California wines are fresh and approachable, perfect for casual dinners at home. For every $15 bottle you buy, Delta donates $1 to fighting climate change. Buy online at winesforchange.com and use the code SHELTER to get 10% off. This past weekend, I pulled an all-nighter for the first time since college. My work on this podcast has often meant that my family eats dinner without me, but this was the first time that I saw the sunrise before I went to sleep. For over a month, I'd been chipping away at Saturday's episode, which featured the 13 women of Fierce, essays by and about dauntless women. I'm proud of the work, and my conversations with those thoughtful women were a gift. But the project reminded me of what I've known all along. In this new pandemic life, it's nearly impossible to get ahead on anything. Most of the time, it takes a series of small miracles just to get caught up. Daily life is stretched taut and ready to snap. The amount of things that we're supposed to be able to do in a day has increased exponentially, but those stubbornly constant 24 hours refuse to expand. 
Last week, I read a story by Deb Perlman that perfectly encapsulates what I've been feeling during this pandemic. You might recognize Deb Perlman as the author of Smitten Kitchen, a food blog that I used to turn to often back when I cooked delightful things, back when I cooked at all. Deb's story is called In the COVID-19 Economy, You Can Have a Kid or a Job, You Can't Have Both. The story begins with the news that New York City schools have announced that kids will attend school a third of the time. Friday, we got news that the Oakland Public School System would begin its academic year with a month of distance learning. After that, who knows? Which is to say, I don't think our kids will be going back to school this fall. Maybe not this year. I'm increasingly pessimistic about these things. Deb writes, At the same time, many adults, at least the lucky ones that have held on to their jobs, are supposed to be back at work as the economy reopens. What is confusing to me is that these two plans are moving forward apace, without any consideration of the working parents who will be ground up in the gears when they collide. Let me say the quiet part loud. In the COVID-19 economy, you're allowed only a kid or a job. Why isn't anyone talking about this? Why are we not hearing a primal scream so deafening that no plotting policy can be implemented without addressing the people buried by it? I think it's because when you're homeschooling all day and not performing the work you were hired to do until the wee hours of the morning and do it on repeat for 106 days, not that anyone's counting, you might be a bit too fried to funnel your rage effectively. I reread Deb's story on Saturday after I'd slept for three hours. It was impossible to sleep longer with my kids thumping around our little house like small elephants, and I wanted to let out that primal scream. But I didn't, because I was too tired. Deb does not dismiss concerns about COVID-19. She acknowledges that this is a complicated issue, but it's one we need to figure out, and fast. She writes, We are burned out, because we are being rolled over by the wheels of an economy that has bafflingly declared working parents inessential. When I read Deb's words, I can't help but note that this problem is eerily familiar. It's the same problem we face when we talk about the wealth gap, or systemic racism, or education, or immigration, or really any other issue that spikes my blood pressure these days. Our parents are not adequately supported for the same reason that our schools are not adequately funded. The same reason we have people living on the streets and going hungry. The same reason COVID-19 has ravaged some populations while others go unhindered. As a nation, individualism is our cultural foundation. We've mistaken selfishness for empowerment. We've forgotten that when we look out for number one, we do so at the expense of others. We might have the luxury of not seeing those consequences, but until we decide that the problems of our most disadvantaged neighbors are our problems, the divide between us will only deepen. Like Deb, I'm shocked that our state and federal governments have not come up with any solutions to support working parents during this time. I'm equally shocked that none of our huge corporations have blazed the trail in rethinking work-life balance. I think change needs to come from the top, and if I can ever find a moment when I'm not quite so exhausted, I'll write those letters to my representatives. 
But I also think it's worth pausing to ask ourselves what exactly the goal is. Because if it's simply to go back to the way things were before, then I don't think we're really solving anything. Our family, like most families we know, was struggling to keep up with life long before the pandemic. We were overworked, financially stressed, and spent a disproportionate amount of time rushing out the door to some activity or obligation. Even though we had consciously resisted overscheduling our kids, a typical week included church, a standing dinner date with several families, Cub Scouts, piano lessons, and school expos. Often, there was an activity every night of the week. We didn't call our parents or siblings often enough, failed to send thank you notes, forgot the birthdays of the people we love most. No matter how hard we worked or how much money we made, life was passing us by and we could not keep up. Prior to this pandemic, I'd been the primary caregiver of our kids for the past eight years. This was more about pragmatism than passion. What I really wanted to be doing was writing full-time. But even with an MFA and a Fulbright scholarship on my resume, I couldn't make a living writing. And since we couldn't afford full-time childcare, Nate worked while I stayed home, squeezing in the writing where I could. A few days into this pandemic, Nate lost his job. Because he'd been working as a contractor with no benefits, there was no severance package, and it took a while to figure out that he was eligible for unemployment. The writing I got paid for was too part-time and inconsistent to qualify for unemployment. And of course, my work as a caregiver did not count for anything at all. Deb writes, The long-term losses for professional adults will be incalculable, too, and will disproportionately affect mothers. Working mothers all over the country feel that they're being pushed out of the labor force and into part-time jobs as their responsibilities at home have increased tenfold. This last line hit me especially hard. It took me eight years and several bouts of depression to realize that I was at my best as a mom when I was writing. When I began this podcast on March 17th, it was a revelation for all of us. I felt like I was a seed that had been buried under the dirt and had finally sprung up a shoot. I hadn't realized the life above ground I'd been missing. While we all agree that the idea for a daily podcast six days a week was way too much, something I never would have taken on if I'd thought it would go longer than three weeks. It's shown me just how much better my mental health is when I'm not caring for my kids full-time. It's one of the reasons why Nate decided to go all-in with me on the podcast rather than look for another job, even if he could find one right now. What this project and this pandemic have revealed to us is that while this life is not sustainable, the old one wasn't either. The goal is not to go back to the old way, the way that prioritized independence, that left the burden of responsibility to each individual family to figure it out. Our new goal is not independence, but interdependence. We're choosing to work less and make less money, but have more time to care for each other and those around us. We're looking to our community to show us the way. For the past couple of months, a dozen mom friends from our kids' school have pooled together money so that our friend Elena, who's a single mom and delivers meals to people as a side hustle, can make us dinner once a week. Those meals of rice and beans and chicken tostadas or enchiladas get us through most of the week. 
A generous supporter has been paying an unemployed preschool teacher to watch our kids for part of each weekday so that Nate and I can work together to try to make a living. It's our anniversary today, and this past weekend, Nate's sister gave us a staggeringly thoughtful and extravagant gift. She took her three kids overnight and treated us to a hotel. It was the first time we'd been without our kids in over five months. The first time I've slept well. The first time I felt rested when I awoke the next morning. It reminded me that while we do need big systematic changes, in the meantime, our survival depends on each other. On the hard days, of which there are many, it's the support of others, including you, our listeners, that gets us through. We are surviving on fumes and generosity. This week will conclude season one. We've made it to 100 episodes because of you, our listeners, people who have reached out to support us financially and to share this podcast with friends. Whether or not we get to season two in the fall will depend on whether or not we can generate enough support to pay our bills between now and then. After months of being supported by our community and by so many of you, we're thinking about how we can work enough to survive, but also find ways to support others. There's a lot we still don't have figured out. Our preschool has opened again, but we don't know how we'll afford it. Even for our older kids, distance learning meant that one of us always had to be hovering over them, supervising to make sure that they were actually on their Zoom calls and not watching YouTube trailers of Frozen. We'd been about to get our son evaluated for ADHD when schools closed in March. We've continued working through the summer just to get him to grade level. I have no idea if we've succeeded. Deb writes, When learning plans for children with special needs could not be followed appropriately this year, academic gains for many students were quickly wiped out. Remote learning has already widened racial and socioeconomic achievement gaps because of disparities in access to technology tutors. As parents are crushed by the COVID economy, so are the children who need the most support. It's no wonder the American Academy of Pediatrics released a statement this weekend urging that students be physically present in school as much as possible this fall. As we approach this school year, the daily sanity I'm finding that I invite you to embrace with me is to prioritize interdependence over independence. This will likely mean that we give up something, that we don't accomplish quite as much. It might mean picking up the slack for someone else who's struggling or speaking up for a coworker who has kids, even if you don't have kids yourself. Most of us don't have to look far to find someone in our life who could use some help. With less than a month before school starts, we're dreaming up ideas about forming a co-op with other families at our school to help out with distance learning. We're imagining a system where we could also take on some kids whose parents work minimum wage jobs or are undocumented or are single parents who can't afford childcare. A system that would help others whether or not they could return the favor. In our family, the only way we can see to do this is to work four days a week instead of six, to work less, to make less, to let the scream become a rallying cry. Maybe it's how we should have been thinking about things all along. 
Before I go, I'd like to thank a few of our supporters. Nick and Aaron Bay. From our Sunday night conversations to meaningful connections to your friends in New Mexico to my gorgeous backyard 40th birthday party. Life is better with your creative vision and friendship. Thank you for holding us up during this time when we've often felt down and for sharing in all of the mundane but important moments of life and faith. Elliot Davis, even in this time when life hasn't been easy, you were the very first to reach out and support us. You are multi-talented in so many areas. You live life as an adventure. And you always make time and space to make our kids feel special. You've often done that for us, too. And not just in the ordinary ways. Those backflip lessons you gave us are a great metaphor for our life right now. Thanks for spotting us, cheering us on, and encouraging us, even when we don't stick the landing. If you found today's episode meaningful and listen on iTunes, Stitcher, or any platform that allows you to rate and review, leaving a quick note about what you appreciate about the show moves us a little closer to being able to make this work sustainable, not just now, but in the future. As always, you can find show notes for today's episode, as well as ways to support the show at shelterinplacepodcast.info. The Shelter in Place music was created by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions. Tamara Kemsley is our associate producer. Nate Davis is our creative director. And Sarah Edgel is our design director. Until next season, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis. And now, if you're still listening, here's a little outtake. Hi, my name is is Matea. I'm three years old. I'm a big girl. You're the only kid that's a big girl.